Hi, folks. We're so glad you're listening to Our Body Politic. If you haven't yet, remember to follow us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you have time, please leave us a review. It helps other listeners find us and we read them for your feedback. You can also reach out to us on Instagram and Twitter at Our Body Politic. We're here for you, with you, and because of you. So keep letting us know what's on your mind. We'd also love for you to join in financially supporting the show if you're able. You can find out more at OurBodyPolitik.com slash donate. Thanks for listening. This is Our Body Politic. I'm guest host Natasha Alford, senior correspondent at The Grio, sitting in for Farai Chidea. It's been more than 50 years since the passing of Title IX, the federal law that protects students from sex-based discrimination, and so much has changed for the better. But there's still a lot of room for progress in women's sports, especially when it comes to how Black women and transgender athletes are criticized by the media. How do we keep making progress for these athletes at the college and professional level and in the way they're covered in the press? We turn first to Jamel Hill, an Emmy Award-winning journalist who covers sports at the intersection of race, gender, and politics. She's reported from the Olympics and the NBA playoffs and was an ESPN columnist. Jamel was named Journalist of the Year by the National Association of Black Journalists in 2018 for her outstanding contribution to sports journalism. And she currently hosts the two-time NAACP Image Award-winning podcast, Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Welcome back to the show, Jamel. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you. Of course, it's great to have you. So, you know, the last time you were on the show, you talked about your book, Uphill, a memoir, which, you know, I love. It was so dynamic. It was inspiring. But a lot has happened since. So just catch us up. What have you been working on recently? Well, um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty knee deep in this Colin Kaepernick documentary that I'm executive producing that's directed by Spike Lee. So doing that and uh, continuing the podcast. And I'm also still writing for The Atlantic. I have a podcast network on Spotify called The Unbothered Network, which uh, centers Black women. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, as always, I'm, I'm good for keeping about 10 jobs. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you mentioned The Atlantic. I saw this this piece that you wrote, Angel Reese meets the same old stereotypes. And it opens us up for this conversation today. We know there's been a lot of controversy about the Women's NCAA Basketball Championship and Louisiana State University players, Angel Reese in particular. So if anybody has been out the loop, catch us up on what's happening. Well, Angel Reese is one of the best players uh, in women's college basketball. And this was a great matchup that everybody was looking forward to uh, because it's Angel Reese, LSU, uh, against Iowa, the Iowa Hawkeyes, and Caitlin Clark. Caitlin Clark was National Player of the Year, best player in women's college basketball. And Angel Reese is one of the biggest personalities also in women's college basketball. She talks trash. She's in your face. And it's not unlike how we often see men play. Like, there's no real difference. Caitlin Clark also talks trash, you know, because she's very confident in her game. And what happened was there was a moment LSU had, you know, the game was well in hand. They were going to win their first women's basketball national championship. And Angel Reese does a gesture to Caitlin Clark that is called the you can't see me gesture. This is a gesture that 
John Cena, the wrestler turned actor, popularized when he was one of the biggest names in sports or one of the biggest names, certainly in professional wrestling. And you just wave your hand in front of your face like you can't see me because I'm so good. That's supposed to be the point of it. So she did this to Caitlin Clark in part because turnabout is fair play. And with Caitlin Clark, you know, a few games prior to that, when they played against Louisville, she scored 40 plus points. It was a hell of a performance, but she did that to Louisville. She said, you can't see me, all right? And when she did it, John Cena tweeted her. It was embraced. People loved it. Angel Reese gave her a dose of her own medicine, Caitlin Clark, that is. And the reaction to Angel Reese doing it, a Black woman, was much different than it was for Caitlin Clark. She got called every name in the book, criticized from end to end, and it just really as I wrote about in The Atlantic, brought about how perceptions of Black women being overly aggressive or the fact that when we're confident, some would even say cocky, how we get treated versus how when everybody else does. And so it was a social experiment that nobody expected that happened that really forced a lot of people um, to kind of really look at themselves. A lot of people told on themselves with their reaction to how both players you know, talk trash in a moment of glory. When you say people told on themselves, I think we have to to dig even deeper, right? Because people think just because you don't say the N-word or you don't use a racial epithet that somehow racism is not laced into, you know, the tone and, and the word choice of reactions. And some of these reactions were so out of pocket People reserved a special kind of vitriol for her. And you say that this is an old but consistent story. So what do you think the role of racism plays in moments like this? And not just race, but gender. So there's some intersectionality that's happening here, too, because, you know, in general, regardless of your ethnicity, there is a way that some people believe women should play, just like there's a way that some people believe women should behave. Right. And I did use purposely the word behave. The modern game for women is is very different because of the gains made by Title IX. The participation of girls and women in sports is almost equal to boys and men in sports. And because of that, of course, women are, you know, the athleticism we're seeing, the competitiveness, the fierceness. Again, all things that men are often praised for. When they start to see women doing some of the same things, then it's a problem. I can give you so many examples of men like you know, just showing out because, and and I don't have a problem with it at all. I'm consistent. I like it all because I think it, it adds entertainment value in the game. But don't sit there and applaud Steph Curry shimmying. And then when Angel Reese or Caitlin Clark do the you can't see me, then you got a problem with it because you feel like it's somehow unladylike or it's unbecoming of a female athlete to do that. So then there's that bucket of it. And then, as you said, there's this sizzling undercurrent of race that is in the language. You know, it's one thing if you criticize Angel Reese and you said, hey, I didn't like that. I thought that was bad sportsmanship. Okay, to each his own. But the name she was being called, it was so much more severe. You know, as I mentioned, the two examples in the story, you had former MSNBC host Keith Oberman, who was once a colleague of mine at ESPN. You know, he called her a bleeping idiot. Right. You had Dave uh, Portnoy, who is the founder of Barstool Sports, uh, which has his own issues. I mean, he called her a classless piece of excrement, okay? This is still a 20-year-old college student, okay? A woman, a 20-year-old college woman, right? That they're calling these names 
and saying these things about. And even if you just did a quick search on Twitter, some of the names she was being called, it was like that level of the abuse. That's when you understand what the racial dynamic is. Like, just because you don't, you know, is one of those show me you want to use the N-word without showing me you want to use the N-word. And some people were flat out saying it. Like, don't get me wrong. There was a contingent of people who were not shy about calling her that. And she even spoke to this herself in the post-game press conference because she's heard these critiques all year. Angel Reese, she wears uh, long lashes. She has long hair. She is a very, like, strong, demonstrative personality, which I think is good for sports and good for the confidence of women. But people, you know, have called her too ghetto and too hood and all this other stuff. So she's had to hear these things about herself. So you better believe in a moment of glory she was going to remind you exactly who Angel Reese was. But this is that tricky intersection of both race and gender, a dynamic that her white counterparts in her sport don't necessarily have to deal with is the racial component, which, you know, sends us to an additional layer within this conversation. For sure. And I have to point out that you did respond to David Portnoy. I did. Uh, calling <laughs> Angel Reese classless. Using tell the us. same language that he used with her. <laughs> Just um, a little, you know. little medicine. Tell us why, yes. though. What moved you? Well, what moved me to do it is like there's an extra layer of protection that black women and girls need because we don't often get it. And when we do get it, typically it comes from each other. Right. And that's not to say that men or black men in particular never protect us. So I'm not I'm not accusing them of that. But I'm just saying more often than not, we are our own defense. And I just thought it was important as a black woman who's often been subjected to similar abuse and especially from one of these people, Dave Portnoy, that it was important that a line be drawn in the sand. And I wasn't the only one that drew it. Shaq did it. A lot of people came to Angel Reese's defense because we see what's happening. A lot of Black athletes came to her defense because many of them have had to deal with the same accusations of being called classless, being called bad for the game, and they're doing the same things that their white counterparts are doing. And when, again, when they do it, it's considered to be revolutionary and welcoming and cool. But when a Black athlete does it, it's different. Well, speaking of insults, Angel Reese heard about Dr. Jill Biden suggesting that maybe Iowa should come to the White House with LSU and all be a happy family and celebrate. As well-intentioned as that was, Angel Reese called that a joke. She was not too happy about the suggestion that the championship-winning team should be there with the losing team at the White House. And it's something that you spoke up about as well. And I wonder, you know, this moment, how does it reinforce the longstanding double standards that are pushing Black women athletes out of their rightfully earned spot? Like, how does this continue to happen where people just don't see that it's undermining the glory that Black women and Black athletes in general deserve in these moments? Yeah, it's very tricky for a lot of Black people, but I think especially for Black women, because erasure is an issue that we have to deal with all the time. And so... I think that's something, the invisibility, the lack of credit is something that Black women, it's just a constant, longstanding historical fight. And we've seen in our workplaces, in our communities, in various environments, a lot of times where even if we're in the midst of a great accomplishment or we've done a good job, we've seen suddenly that conversation shift to center whiteness. And I'm sure at the time watching such a great game. And this game, by the way, is the most watched women's college basketball game in history. In history. Okay. What an accomplishment right there. Yeah. Yes. I mean, 10 million viewers. I mean, to give further context, the men's national championship game drew 12. So they were within 
striking distance of having a game that rated just as high as the men's. So this is a banner moment for women's college basketball. And I know it was a great game, great competitors, two great outstanding players in Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark. And I'm sure after seeing that, even though Iowa got wiped, (laughs) she was thinking, oh, it would be great to have both of these teams at the White House. But in that moment, which should have been purely about LSU's accomplishment, them winning the first ever national championship for women's basketball at their school, the whiteness got centered. The whiteness being Caitlin Clark in Iowa, right? And that is something that Black women have had to deal with forever. And for the people who were telling me like, oh, why would you make it a racial issue? Well, let me ask you this. Do you think if LSU would have lost that she would have invited them to the White House? She would not have. (laughs) I think she kind of spoke out of turn and probably reactively as opposed to thinking about how that invitation might be received. Caitlin Clark, you know, it's interesting. She was praised for her performance, but she also put out a statement defending Angel Reese. And I wonder, Jamel, do you think it's enough? And what can people who want to be allies in moments like this do? I thought it was significant that Caitlin Clark put out that statement and and that she did a few interviews in which she publicly voiced how much respect she has for Angel Reese as a player and how she never felt like she should have faced that level of criticism or any criticism at all for doing the you can't see me gesture. She also said she never even saw it. And so, like, you have these people who are up in arms. She was like, I promise you, I did not see her doing it. <laughs> She's like, I'm minding my business. It's right. right. She's like, I'm focused on the fact I just lost the national championship. Like, right. I didn't really have time to, to really take in my surroundings at that point. But she not only came to defense of her, she also said she would not want to go to the White House if there was an invitation extended. And I think that was kind of how the entire team, she was speaking for the team in that moment. It's like, I I don't think they ever would have wanted to steal LSU's moment, even if there was a formal invitation that had gone out to them. And so often what I tell people who desire to be allies is that you actually have to take it deeper than just being an ally. You know, it's more like you need to be an accomplice. It's like you need to put something on the line too. I thought it was great that she did stick herself out there a little bit because she didn't really have to do it. And so when those people who are thinking about like, how can I be a better ally? The best way to me you can be one is when you challenge something, support something, support somebody, support an issue when it's not beneficial, when it's not comfortable for you to actually do it. Something that may cost you some social standing, something that may cost you a friendship or two, something that may cost you perception is that you got to wage something. You got to put something on the line to me to be a real ally. For sure. I'm thinking also of just the world that we live in now. It's a world dominated by social media, which is mixed in with mainstream media. You got voices like David Portnoy, who have these huge fan bases that are now a part of public conversation. And Jamel, I wonder, how do we rectify the disparity of power between some of these bloggers that have huge audiences and they can say whatever about Black athletes, and then you have our emerging talent like Angel Reese. How do we rectify that power disparity and also protect these athletes? That is a good part about social media is that it forces a level of accountability really fast, (laughs) right? Because I can tell you this in my own short history with Dave Portnoy, very rarely is he silent. And he has a very specific type of 
person that follows that brand and him. This is why so many people have been hesitant to speak out against some of the other things, because he's said racist things. He's got a very long history. Just Google him. okay? part of the reason people are reluctant, especially women are reluctant to engage with him is because of the level of nastiness that comes with it. The people that follow him, how they verbally abuse people online is very specific and it's very different than other forms of verbal abuse that you might see. I think when people like him in those positions of power, when their power goes unchecked, it's dangerous for everybody. And this is like the biggest role to me that social media can help in curbing that is that you got to continue to hold people accountable, continue to pull the receipts because the receipts are something that cannot be debated against. And because I do see so many of these hypocrisies and injustices happening all the time, we need to be able to confront those. I don't know if we will fully make up for the disparity, but I think that's why it's very important that when we get to that position of power, that we use it very strategically and very wisely, but also very purposely because of the disparity that exists. We know that this is bigger than one sport uh, or one person. And We see someone like Angel who's confident and she's just like pushing through all the negativity. But I do wonder, do you think bias against Black women, misogynoir, could that impact a player's performance? Just based off what I observed of this team, it's like they have a pretty strong unit. And I think there she's going to find a big support system. That being said, I hope there's being space made for her if she doesn't feel strong. I hope that there's some kind of safe space vulnerable space that if these things have psychologically impacted her, that she has the voice to say that and the room to say that and to deal with that. You know, calling us strong Black women is meant to be a compliment, but it can also be very debilitating in that we feel like we always have to have that battle armor on and we can't take it off. And one thing that I will say about this generation of Black athletes is that they're so much more aware of their boundaries than my generation ever was like they, you know, I look at a player like an athlete like Naomi Osaka. I look at Simone Biles, you know, Simone Biles was like, I've done enough. I, she pulled out of the Olympics because she's like, listen, I've I, I won. They got three moves named after me. That, ne- <laughs> that is true. I was like, they got three moves named after her. That's, it doesn't get better than that. <laughs> that has never been done in history. She's like, I got nothing left to prove. I don't have to give all of myself to you all. And so she very clearly set a boundary and she stuck with it. Naomi Osaka is the same thing. She's told us, I'm not okay. Not okay. And these media press conferences do nothing but give me anxiety. You know, she talked about the mental effects she's facing. And rather than subject herself for that, for her sport, sacrifice her own mental health, she decided, I'm going to take a time out. And so this is a different way that athletes today are much clearer and have a much clearer sense of their mental health and their boundaries that I think is really healthy and really progressive. And that is very different from previous generations. It's such a perfect example of the new role model, right? What it means to be a role model is not just this picture perfect on the cereal box type of image, but it's to have a story, to have challenges and to to meet those with confidence and with honesty. Yeah, I mean, I I hope that this championship and the viewership and and realize, like, I know a lot of people have tried to characterize it 
like it was a glitch in the matrix when the ratings and the popularity of women's college basketball has been soaring the last decade. And the comparison to men's sports only leads to bad places because they want to compare, you know, let's say the WNBA and NBA. They want to compare a 25-year-old product versus a product that's been lasting 70 plus years. I mean, the WNBA, it's a growing sport. I was there the first year it started as a reporter covering the league and looking at us now, it's leaps and bounds. There's so much that league has to be proud of. You have new independent owners that are in the WNBA and that was something, a future they didn't see 25 years ago. They couldn't have imagined that the national championship game would be on ABC. That was on ABC, all right? That speaks to the growth of the game. There's a lot to be optimistic about. A final question as we close, Jamel. The big question for me is how do we transform the idea of what the all-American athlete is so that Black women athletes can just do what they love and just play? I think that coverage is part of it, is that we have to start covering women's athletes as layered personalities and not based off tropes that (laughs) kind of don't fit a lot of them anymore. It's covered in a very patriarchal way. I think a lot of times. And so we have to move away from that and allow room for these personalities. Like Angel Reese should be a household name. The way that she plays, the passion in which she plays, we should be covering that in a celebratory way because it's going to influence other women and give them the confidence and empower them to feel like they can always be themselves. Like I think sports fans used to want the poster on the wall, somebody that they consider to be a superhero. But I find that sort of the younger generation of sports fans are drawn to people who are okay with showing their flaws. We need real heroes, imperfect heroes, human heroes. Jamel Hill, thank you so much for joining the show today. It was great talking with you. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. That was Jamel Hill, award-winning sports journalist, host of the podcast Jamel Hill is Unbothered, and author of Uphill, a memoir. We turn next to hear from a college athlete herself who's hustling hard on and off the field. Howard University student Takunda Rusike is the founder of the second ever women's rugby team at a historically black college or university. Under her leadership, her team became the first ever HBCU women's team to compete in a collegiate game under the College Rugby Association of America's Regional Rugby Championships. Takunda has a long-standing love of the sport by way of her Zimbabwean roots, and she's working to make rugby accessible to Black athletes nationwide. Thanks so much for joining us, Takunda. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. Oh, we are happy to have you today. You founded Howard's first ever rugby team. What motivated you to do that? I had just been playing. And really, when I was starting to make my college decision, I had a lot of options. And with that, I really started to realize that there really is such a huge gap with athletic programs and access, especially with rugby. I think when I was able to get that financial package from Howard that was possible to go there, the decision was obvious. So pretty much, I decided to go to Howard. And at first, I was going to play club, as you know, in the D.C. area. I don't know if you know, but there's the Furies. There's Nova Women's Rugby. There's a lot of great women's rugby teams, D.C. Renegades. I mean, the list goes on. Then going to Howard and then just like meeting people. And then the way the semesters turned out, our freshman year, we were completely online. I think with that, having all that time to myself and still training because I was used to playing the sport in high school, I really was just like, you know, why isn't there rugby here? So as soon as I met some girls that were like they played and I was seeing that there was really like an interest, 
And then I met Miss Creel Gurthy. She's a Howard alum who was really integral in getting us up off the ground when we started. As soon as I met like her, like kind of those pieces started coming together. I was like, okay, there's really no reason not to do this. So we're just going to go full in. Okay, so let's go back to the part where you were recruiting people for rugby. You said that some folks had played before, actually, and some were, like, interested. What was the pitch to other Howard students about why they should join the rugby team? So when we first started, I think we started with, like, our first practices was, like, 7, 10. Now we have, like, a team of, like, 40, 45. It's actually insane. So... Really, when I first started, it was just getting those girls who had already played before. Because when you're first starting a team like that, especially rugby, like, I didn't want to have to create a team from scratch. So that was really kind of like my first. And just like talking to girls and then especially just being open that I was playing and doing this. Girls will start coming up to me like, hey, I used to play, like, would be interested. I'm also very just like outgoing. I love people. I'm a very big people person. So I think that really helped a lot, too. And are there a lot of Black women rugby players? You know, my college roommates, all Black women, they played rugby, but it was something that I'd never heard of before. Tell me about that. What's the landscape? So now a lot of us do. But yeah, I definitely will say like there was a huge disparity from when I would go to track practice and then when I would go to rugby practice and I would feel that. And that was a huge part of the reason why I was kind of hesitated to jump full into rugby because I don't like play spaces that are not that inclusive. And I was a huge driver to the fact of why I wanted to try and do this. And I was like, even if it fails, whatever, because you know what, even if I had a couple practices with just like a team of Howard girls, like that's okay. Like even if it fails, that was really my mindset. Hmm. I wonder what challenges did you face, if any, navigating the university system as a student leader trying to get this off the ground. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to lie. Definitely, there's been some trials. It's so hard. But I would just say, like, having an exec board, there's, it's not just me. We have so many girls who I've gotten invested, who love this sport as much as I do, who work alongside me to make things happen. So I would say just having that support system, just because I there are days where I cannot do it. It is very hard exhausting. It can be very mentally challenging because it's just, you know, you're trying to progress in your sport, but you're also trying to like essentially like bring up an organization and a business in a sense. I wonder, what do you think about the rugby team going varsity? Is that like a goal of yours? That's the main goal. So pretty much right now, like that's why it's so being that we're going to regionals. And that's why we really want to make sure we're able to come out on top and prove ourselves. And when we get back from regionals, we'll be answering those conversations with administration and just uh, what the next steps look like. I would definitely hope within the next five years, we're at varsity level for sure. I am interested in your thoughts about what you'd like to see change in women's sports. Now that you've done it, you know, you've built something from scratch. You understand Title IX and all the intricacies. What do you think needs to change to continue to improve things? Transparency. I think... There needs to be transparency across all like athletic boards and just programs. We need to be able to see what money's coming in, what money's coming out. We just need to have transparency, like how much is the men's coach getting paid versus the women's coach? Just transparency. I mean, the huge example of this is a couple years ago with the men's NCAA basketball tournament. And the women had posted like their warm-up setup and like kind of their warm-up courts. And I think it was like in a business center in like a hotel that they had like put on like wood planks. And, like, the men had had some, like, super elaborate warm-up, like, center. And 
that was a difference that nobody knew about until I think like a couple years ago, just because of the internet and people had posted. Social media is really giving us a voice and a platform to where we can talk about these things and really just transparently see that there are huge differences within the roots of these systems. When there's something wrong, there's something wrong. And we're getting better. I feel like things are getting better for women in athletics, but there's still something wrong here. There's still more work to do, that is for sure. It makes me wonder if you were talking to some aspiring Black women athletes, let's say these are girls in high school, you know, they're hoping to come to Howard University, maybe join your rugby team. What advice would you give them for navigating the challenges and the joys that come with being a college athlete? Obviously, college is, you know, it's not just sports. It's also the school. It's also the social especially going to Howard, it's very easy to take on too much and have anxiety and just like, it can become overwhelming too fast, really quickly. So I would just make sure you have at least one day of the week to like mope out and take a nap and you know just things like that. Because again, even though these women are grinding and grinding and grinding to a goal, they're still people. So I think that was really my biggest thing and my biggest takeaway because um, it's something I wish somebody would have told me. Great advice right there. Enjoy these these good years of your life. People say they are some of the best years of your life. You have a lot to look forward to, though. And speaking of that, final question. What are your plans for after graduation? Anything in yes. mind just yet? So funny that I mentioned this. I actually just received my acceptance for my internship with a consulting firm. So I'm looking to build a career in healthcare consulting that's really what I'm passionate about, just like healthcare administration. It's really important that we have Black women in these spaces because a lot of these policies are not made with us in mind at all. I've loved being at Howard. I'm going to be so sad to graduate from Howard, but I am really excited to see kind of what opportunities await. I am talking to coaches, seeing, so I'm really excited to, you know, pursue my master's degree and finish my last couple years of rugby eligibility. I love the sport, so I'm going to go out with a bang and play one last time in college. I think this experience has really taught me that I can run a business, that I can, you know, be ahead of a company, that I want to do that. I'm excited to see where, you know, life takes me. I will continue to play, continue to tackle. <laughs> well, wherever you go, we are sure you will take that championship energy and mindset with you. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Thank you, thank you for having me. That was college student Takunda Rusike, founder of the Women's Herd Rugby Team at Howard University. Each week on the show, we bring you a roundtable called Sippin' the Political Tea. Joining me is Christina Williams, the founder of Girls Talk Sports TV. Hi, Christina. Hi, Natasha. How are you? I'm doing great. Great to have you on the show today. And we also have with us Kavitha A. Davidson, sports writer and correspondent on HBO Real Sports with Bryant Gumbel. Welcome, Kavitha. Hi, Natasha. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. So we are going to dig deep on the role of gender in the wider world of sports and sports journalism. Christina, let's start with you. You cover women's basketball in depth on your platform, Girls Talk Sports TV. And this was an exciting year for women's college basketball, especially with Louisiana State University's championship win. It was just an incredible moment for women's sports. 
But we also saw there was some media criticism of star player Angel Reese. What did you think of the coverage of the team? Yeah, so the win was huge for the LSU program, obviously, because it was the first win in the program's history. And then you dive deeper into Kim Mulkey. She was able to do it at two different programs. And so it's a historical win on both sides. And so the criticism of Angel Reese, I think that there's a double standard when it comes to how women athletes are covered, but also when you dig deeper into how Black women athletes are covered. And we saw that at play during the Final Four. Don Staley, she was someone who came out and spoke about how her players out South Carolina was covered during the Final Four and throughout the history of, of the program since she had taken over. But yeah, we saw what was at play with Angel Reese being criticized and how Black women athletes are held to a different standard or under a different microscope compared to their white counterparts. And also in terms of how um, Black women athletes are covered compared to their white counterparts as well. Well, it makes me think of this idea of proper sportsmanship, right? There were so many critics who said, look, this has nothing to do with race. It has nothing to do with gender. We're just talking about sportsmanship. Kavitha, what is proper sportsmanship? And how do you think it's somehow applied differently to women in sports? Sportsmanship in sports is a word that just means respectability politics, right? That's what we're really talking about here. And it's really fascinating to watch these conversations play out in the context of women's sports 10, 20, 30 years after we saw these very racially tinged conversations play out in men's sports, right? It reminds me a lot of when Cam Newton was facing off with Peyton Manning in the Super Bowl and Super Bowl 50 and the treatment of Cam having personality and being, you know, this kind of a little bit of oddball, but but serving himself athletically versus Peyton Manning being this kind of image of what you think of as the stoic quarterback kind of thing. We're seeing that play out now today, which on the one hand, it does actually sit a weird kind of progress that we're talking about women's sports in this way, but we shouldn't be grateful for that, right? And we're seeing it play out in a way that obviously has the racial component, but with the gendered component, then you have a lot of conversation about ladylike behavior and what that means. It's very interesting to see the same conversations that we've been having now play out with the added element of being Black and being women. Let's talk about the Biden administration and the way that they have proposed a rule to change Title IX to include transgender athletes. Kavitha, can you walk us through what is the proposal and what does it mean for transgender athletes? So put very simply, the Biden administration has proposed legislation that is meant to prevent states from enacting all-out wholesale bans against trans athletes. Now, that does sound like a good thing, and it is a good step forward. The problem is it still leaves room for a case-by-case basis of banning certain trans athletes dependent on sport, dependent on very subjective terms. And a lot of pro-trans athlete advocates will point out that it doesn't go far enough. We have 20 states right now that have on the books legislation that does ban trans athletes. Some of the more invasive and uh, draconian cases, Kansas is a very good example of this, actually allows for genital inspection of these athletes. And these are children. These are children we are talking about. And there's also not any guarantee that it's actually going to get passed. The thing about Title IX legislation in general is that it's very much at the whim of of the executive branch and who's president at the time. We spend a lot of airtime and a lot of Congress's time talking about this, coming up with solutions for a problem that doesn't really exist. 
I'm interested in hormone testing. We know that that is also part of this conversation on a national and international level. How does hormone level testing, like for testosterone, and gender-affirming hormone treatment fit into our conversation about fairness? So on the one hand, hormone testing is an attempt to be as objective and as fair as possible when assessing whether there is a competitive advantage or not. My opinion on this is that there's just not enough science to back up where those levels should be placed. The idea that people who have not cared about gender equality in sports, frankly, have probably never read Title IX themselves, that they are using a cultural issue like this, a political talking point like this, to suddenly signal for equality in women's sports is very cynical at best and at worst is very dangerous for a population that's already under threat. I want to go back to what we talked about earlier, which is the media's treatment of women athletes. Christina, I'm curious, what are some of the ways that media coverage of Black women athletes reflects a a misunderstanding of Black women? Yeah, I think the hypercriticism of how these athletes are covered in terms of their flaws. It definitely paints that narrative that we lack excellence. It's going back to diminishing our greatness, you know, just being our authentic selves or that we achieved greatness through other channels. When we look at how they're covered, we're thinking about like a white dominated space. And so the thought of black women achieving a success in that, yeah, they're going to get criticized. It makes me wonder whether regulations and rules still favor white and male players, right? I'm thinking of all these examples, you know, Shikari Richardson being banned over testing positive for marijuana use. Soul caps. These are the extra large swimming caps that are designed for Black women's hairstyles. That was also banned, right? I mean, these are just things that, again, show that the default and the standard is one in which Black women are almost not expected to be there. I wrote about soul caps a couple of years ago, and it shows you that the people in charge who are making these rules are still predominantly white men, that you don't have an understanding of why an expanded swim cap might be necessary for certain natural hair or the emotional and and political connection to hair in general that, that so many of our women have. Whether you're talking about Shikari Richardson or any swimmer who who needed needs or or wants to use a soul cap, the idea that black women are held to a standard that if if you deviate an eighth of an inch from what the rule states technically, or if any kind of exception has to be made, then you're you're vilified for it, right? We saw with the Black male pioneers in sports like Jackie Robinson or like Henry Aaron that there is a right type of Black woman athlete to be if you want to be accepted by the mainstream or by the media. And that perception really only changes as we have more coverage of women's sports and as we have more personal personalities. And by the way, so much of the criticism of women's sports is how much money they generate or the marketing around them. And frankly, something like this Angel Reese and Caitlin Clark thing has been very good for the marketing of women's sports. Well, we've talked about everything from culture to biology to testing. We have not yet talked about mental health. Thinking again of Shikari Richardson, you know, talking about having to smoke to cope with the death of her mother. Naomi Osaka being fined for refusing to do interviews, being criticized for dropping out of the French Open because she prioritized her mental health. How does the media play a role 
in the overall wellness of athletes and also promoting a healthy or an unhealthy idea of mental health? There seems to be a trend, right, in terms of covering, you know, women athletes or women athletes of color in general, where the media will do everything they can to build up the athlete. And then you'll see that switch where it's like they're responsible also for bringing them all the way down. And we saw it happen with Richardson. You know, it's just very interesting how we control those narratives. And it just goes back to having diversity in the newsroom and so that we are able to be fully equipped to tell these stories in the right way. You're both women of color who are working in sports journalism. I just want to point out 2022 survey data from the Pew Research Center showed 83% of sports journalists surveyed identified as male and 82% identified as white. So, Christina, do these numbers surprise you? And what do you think they say about the need for change in sports media? The numbers do not surprise me at all. In fact, that is part of the reason why I had to start my own platform to even get a start in the sport industry. And so what does it say? It says that nothing much has changed and that there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in this new space. But yeah, I'm not surprised by those numbers at all. I think that in the women's basketball space, especially, it shows the diversity in the coverage, um, you know, in terms of who's covering the game. And it's a lot of women of color in this space as well. And when you look at the bigger picture, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. There's so much work that needs to be done. And and women's sports, we know, are catching up to men's sports in terms of these endorsement dollars, you know, getting boosts in TV ratings and media recognition. Kavitha, how do we get to the promised land of equality that, that Title IX is supposed to represent? Well, from a media coverage standpoint, it's still very basic. When people read those numbers, 83% or identify as white men, a lot of them still have the immediate assumption, well, it's because women don't want to cover sports. Women just aren't interested in sports. Women of color aren't interested in sports, right? One of the numbers in there, because I'm an Indian American, was I think Asian representation among sports writers is less than 1%. Now, I actually have less of a problem with that than I do of Black representation because of who we're covering. I mean, if if we talk about proportionality with the United States demographics, that's one thing. But if we also talk about proportionality with the athletes that we're covering, you know, if 77% of the NFL is black, close to maybe 70% or something of, of NFL writers should also probably be from similar backgrounds or backgrounds where they can properly cover these athletes. And we we just don't see that. So I think we have to get over the attitudes that only white men like sports, that only white men want to cover sports, or that only white men have the aptitude to cover sports, which is the other thing. When we do see inroads made by people of color and women of color in particular, it's usually because they have played these sports, which I think is great. Candace Parker should have every platform available to her, right? But we give so much more leeway to white men who have never played a sport in their life who are very good at what they do, but that's not a requirement for them in the same way that it is for the rest of us. That goes hand in hand with who are making the decisions. It's even worse when you look at the top. Look at the numbers for who the sports editors are, who the executive producers are, and the numbers are going to be even more stark. So the decision makers, unless you started your own company like Christina did, they're still largely white men. And that very much does trickle down to who does the coverage and how the coverage is shaped. Well, you know, there is another role in this picture that can play a part in advocating for equality, and that is the fans, (laughs) the role of the fans, the spectators. Christina, 
as we wrap up today, what do you think their role is in changing this narrative? What can all of us at home do to try to uplift equality in sports? I love the women's sports space so much because the fans are what we call fluid fans and they're loyal. They support by liking, sharing the content, engaging, but also they challenge the newsrooms. I love Twitter so much because you get to see it happen in real time where fans are like challenging media and media companies to do better when it comes to covering, you know, black athletes or diversifying their coverage in sport. And we see it happen in real time where those companies listen to the fans and they provide avenues for real coverage and a change in how they cover the game in real time. So just keep the conversation going, keep building community and just keep supporting by watching, liking, buying merch, just little things like that um, to support the game and grow it. Well, Christine, I have to shout you out because I read that when you were in middle school, there was a boys basketball team and you wanted a girls basketball team and you went around and you rallied yes. <laughs> to get this team created. And that is just so emblematic of the Title IX spirit, right? The fact that girls want to play too and they want the opportunity. What an image to think of how you went from rallying to get the girls basketball team started to now starting your own company. Yeah, when I think about it, I mean, it's like the circle of life. <laughs> I started in the fifth grade with saying, hey, I don't want to be a cheerleader. I actually want to learn how to play basketball. And I think that we should have a basketball team. It's a different fight now, years later, where it's trying to get that equitable media coverage for, you know, women's sports and women athletes of color as well. And so I'm here for the long haul. I think that we're seeing a shift happen, especially like we mentioned with athletes like Angel Reese, who are more outspoken about the coverage and, and what's happening. And so I'm excited for what the future of sport is going to look like. Amazing. Kavitha, as we close, what's your call to action? How do you think we lift up women, transgender, non-binary athletes of all backgrounds? I'll just echo what Christina said. Be loud about what you like. Go take to social media. You know, might think that it, it goes into the ether, but companies, teams, leagues read all of it. And, you know, it sometimes helps to drown out some of the loudest small and minority voices that speak against equality. I do not believe that it is a mainstream view to discriminate against athletes. I think that it's the loudest people with the hottest mics that state those opinions. Sports is still a small C conservative business. And, you know, when something hasn't been broke and when revenues continue to rise, nobody takes any chances on things like women's sports. So if you demonstrate that there is a need, then people will listen to that. The other thing that I will add is for decades in the business of marketing and consuming men's sports, leagues and teams cared the most about avid fans. And there are no more avid fans than fans of women's sports. But now the evolution of the business has gone toward executives realizing that so much money is to be made from the casual fan in men's sports. So the avid fan in women's sports can bring in casual fans and grow fan bases. You don't have to be a season ticket holder, but you know, seeing the value in it in women's sports and consuming it in the same way that you might casually on a Sunday or if you ha happen to, you know, have a fantasy player who's on a certain team, that's the way that we're actually going to grow the business of the sport itself. So, you know, the avid to the casual fan pipeline, I think, is really important. All right. Avid and casual fans mount up. Now is your time. We are supporting women's sports. Christina Kavitha, thank you so much for being on the show today. It was great to have you. Thank you for having us. Thank you. 
That was Kavitha A. Davidson, sports writer and correspondent on HBO's Real Sports with Brian Gumbel, and Christina Williams, founder of Girls Talk Sports TV. Thanks for listening to Our Body Politic. We're on the air each week and everywhere you listen to podcasts. You can also find us on Instagram and Twitter at Our Body Politic. Our Body Politic is produced by Diaspora Farms and Rococo Punch. I'm today's host, Natasha Alford. Farai Chidea and Nina Spensley are our executive producers. Emily J. Daly is our senior producer. Bridget McAllister is our booking producer. Anoa Shanga is our producer. Natina Bean and Emily Ho are our associate producers. Monica Morales-Garcia is our fact checker. This program is produced with support from the Luce Foundation, Open Society Foundation, Ford Foundation, Craig Newmark Philanthropies, the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Philanthropies, Democracy Fund, the Harnish Foundation, Compton Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, the Be Me Community, Katie McGrath and J.J. Abrams Family Foundation, and from generous contributions from listeners like you.